This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the opening of the Book of Acts and the beginning of the spirit-filled movement changing the course of human history. Yep. Welcome to session four. Complete with new music. We didn't even talk about the new music last. Oh, yeah. Intro lesson. That's true. We did not mention it. Hey, let's start session four off with some context. Let's, uh, let's, let's wait on the text and let's start with some context and then get into text. How about that? Sounds great. Okay. Sound, sounds like kind of what we do. So what we do. All right, here's some context. Let's see. Let's go back to Julius Caesar. We're familiar with the story of Julius Caesar. What happened to Julius Caesar, Brent? Uh, he died. Yeah, he was assassinated, right? Brutus and all those guys. So uh, Julius being the first Caesar of Rome. And uh, this led to, uh, after his assassination, led to a major battle for the throne. Um, had two, they had some major problems. Um, Julius was without a son. He didn't have an heir to the throne. Kept trying to get a son and could not acquire a son to take over the throne. So what he did was right before his death, he actually adopted his nephew. His name was Octavian. And he adopted Octavian as his legal son, making him then the legal heir who he willed the Caesarship to uh, Octavian. The problem was, was Octavian was super young and um, not a a warrior, not a, a, an accomplished Roman uh, politician or senator. He was very inexperienced. And there was another person who was in place to take the throne after Julius Caesar's. He wasn't involved in the assassination. Um, that was all kind of headed up by this whole band of people and Brutus and all those folks that were trying to keep this tyrant from running Rome, but they weren't prepared to take over the throne and over the leadership of Rome. So there's a guy by the name of Mark Antony. Mark Antony is prepared to take over the throne. He has the political experience. He is the Roman warrior. He is the conqueror. He is the person that everybody would expect to be there. The problem is, is nobody likes him. Octavian, on the other hand, everybody loves, and he's brilliant, politically brilliant, completely inexperienced, but political, a political mastermind. And so you have this battle of the wits, the brain versus the brawn. And one person makes all kinds of sense to put on the throne, Mark Antony. The other person is who everybody wants on the throne, Octavian, but they can't seem to figure out how to get that job done because Antony says so there's a struggle. There's a struggle for who's going to rule in Rome. Now, ultimately, what ends up happening is in Roman history, there there was a comet. They call it Caesar's Comet. Brent, you're actually going to put a link to the Wikipedia article that just talks about Caesar's Comet that flashed across the sky. Apparently, everybody had seen it. It was in all the newspapers the next morning, that kind of idea. Octavian, being the brilliant mastermind that he was, seized on the opportunity that the current events provided him. And he uh, made a public prop public proclamation. Everybody saw that comet streaking through the sky last night. That was actually my father, Julius. And Julius was ascending to his rightful place as God, seated at the Most High. That that comet was my dad, Julius Caesar, ascending to his throne as God. Now, if he's God, that makes me the son of God. That makes me the son of the Most High. Keep in mind your historical timeline. This is all happening decades before Jesus, a few decades before Jesus. Jesus. This is happening decades and decades, almost a century before a gospel is actually penned and written. 
But this all predates the arrival of Jesus. So notice, just as a side note as we get here, Brent, notice that when the Christmas story arrives and Jesus shows up and people are calling him Prince of Peace and Lord of Lords and Son of the Most High and the Son of God, these things are already political phrases that are being used and the biblical authors are subverting these ideas and reusing them for the person of Jesus and the person of Christ. These are not phrases that are made up to talk about. About Jesus. These are phrases that are being stolen from the political propaganda that's all around them. And they're making a statement about this new king and a new kingdom that we talked about in session three. That's what's being said here. Nevertheless, I digress. Back to the story in Rome. And just a note here from this Wikipedia page. It says the uh, the magnitude at its brightest would have been around a negative four. If you understand magnitude, then you know what that means. If you don't, don't worry about it. But Essentially, it would have been about as bright as Venus. Sure. Okay. And Venus being a Roman god. So they see this Absolutely. thing. It's in the sky like all their other gods are. Yep. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's not unusual that they would say this. Absolutely. And, and Octavian knew this. It wasn't just a crazy story he cooked up on his bed that night. He was definitely... Uh, he definitely saw the opportunity and he took it. And what he did, what he did was he gave the political people in power, the Roman senators, the ability, the door they needed. He opened the door they needed to make him the ruler. Remember, that's when they wanted, but it didn't make any sense to put him there. Antony was the one that everybody knew was going to get in there. So what happened was, was the Roman Senate threw all their weight behind Octavian's story. And they said, here's our opportunity to make him emperor. Yes. In fact, the senator said, we were there when Julius Caesar ascended into heaven. We're witnesses to Octavian's story. Octavian is telling the truth. Octavian's going to later become Caesar Augustus, like the Caesar. Caesar Augustus, the Caesar that everybody keeps trying to restore Rome back to later in the story. Okay. So... So the senators back his story, but they the senators aren't political fools either. They're also brilliant. And so they make a brilliant move, politically speaking, because they have no interest in Caesar Augustus, Octavian, becoming his own version of a political tyrant. So what they do is they back Octavian's story, giving him the throne— But they also, when they tell the story, said, they kind of added a little element. They said, oh, yeah, we were there when Caesar ascended to heaven. And by the way, before he left, he told us that we were his ambassadors. We were his witnesses. We were the ones that were going to take, we were his empowered ambassadors. And we were told that we were going to take Rome to the very ends of the earth. It was our job to spread the empire of Rome to the very ends of the earth. So these politicians are no... They didn't miss their opportunity either. They backed Octavian and put him on the throne, while at the same time maintaining in the story the political power that they needed to keep Caesar in check. A brilliant move. Why are we talking about it to start this podcast? Because we need to understand that that story predates the Gospels and the book of Acts by decades and decades and decades. So now that we know that story, predating the book of Acts by at least 60 or 70, more likely 80 or 90 years, go ahead and read me the opening couple paragraphs, few paragraphs of the book of Acts, Brent, and let's get into session four. 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which there's two ways we can hear that question, by the way. Jesus has just gotten done teaching them for how long about the kingdom of God, Brent? 40 days. For 40 days, which is a brilliant little reference here. Um, we may, that may even be relevant by the time we're done in this podcast. But uh, they ask him, are, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Which some of us could hear that as, oh my goodness, these disciples still don't get it. Like they still think Jesus is going to, like resurrected Jesus is going to restore some political kingdom. Or after 40 days on teaching the kingdom, it could be, what did Jesus just tell him? He said, I need you to stay here because you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Their response is, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Which could be a very Jewish response to the rabbi saying, we get it, Jesus. It's going to be our turn. You're looking for a partner just like we saw in session one. You're looking for a partner and you're asking us to be it. You want us to go restore kingdom. And if that's true, Jesus does a very rabbinic thing. He essentially says, bye, and leaves. Like he ascends at that point. And, and a Jew would tell you that no rabbi is going to leave if his students don't get it. So if they did get it, Jesus's response is very appropriate. Go ahead and keep reading. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And now that we have context, we see Luke's deliberate play on that story. Now, Marty, are you saying that Jesus didn't ascend? No, not saying that at all. It could have been Jesus's direct play on the Caesar story. It absolutely could have happened exactly like we read it, but we need to read in Luke's story the obvious implications of this story paralleling and mirroring the story of Octavian and Julius Caesar's ascension. Jesus says essentially the same thing. You will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. In in the Julius Caesar story, there were 12 senators on top of the mountain when Julius Caesar ascended to heaven. I was about to ask you how many senators Absolutely. there were. And like, there's no way there could have been 12, right? Yep. And so I didn't even bother. I was like, unbelievable. And here on this mountain, we have 11, which is why the very next story in Acts 1 is going to be them finding the 12th, because they're one short. There should be 12. Judas isn't there. There should be 12 people standing on a mountain when Jesus ascends into heaven, and there's actually 11. But in the Roman story, there's 12 people with Julius Caesar Julius Caesar ascends into heaven, telling them, you are my ambassadors to take Rome to the very ends of the earth. Jesus now stands on his mountain, the Mount of Olives, with 11 of his 
people saying, you are my witnesses. In a sense, you are my ambassadors to take the kingdom of God to the very ends of the earth. And we're still having our hands, Brent, a narrative, a tale of two what? Two kingdoms. Very much empire and very much shalom. And this clash of two stories, the same story, one of them probably didn't happen and one of them probably did. Maybe neither of them did. I don't know. But these, this clash of two stories of a Caesar ascending into heaven and a Jesus ascending into heaven and this brilliant, beautiful play. And what that means is, and I think, you know, I didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrated the ascension. There's a Sunday on the Christian church calendar that should be Ascension Sunday. We didn't make a big deal of it in the tradition that I grew up in. And I wish we did more because it's the one Sunday where we remember that we were tasked with a mission. If Caesar gave his people a mission to take, we have been commissioned, not just with the great commission to make disciples, but to take the kingdom of God as his ambassadors. This is how the book of Acts begins with a movement of God's people. And what Jesus says is going to be a spirit-filled movement of God's people as his ambassadors, just like those Roman senators tasked with taking Rome to the very ends of the earth, so we as God's followers have been tasked with taking the kingdom of God to the very ends of the earth. And this isn't a subtle reference. Like the story of Caesar and the comet and his ascension, like this is the kind of stuff that's going to be played out in their theater. Like, everyone's going to know this story. Absolutely. This is absolutely common. Within within a century, one of the most prominent political stories that people are going to know. Absolutely. So Luke is very deliberately playing off of that. Or Jesus. I, I like to think Jesus is playing off of that as he ascends into heaven with a twinkle in his eye, is how I like to, how I like to say it. But Jesus said this was going to be a spirit-filled community. And so that takes us into the next chapter. So if we go to uh, Acts chapter 2, um, we're going to have our next story that we're going to look at here. And the very first thing we need to talk about here is we need to talk about the setting. The story of Pentecost is what we know about, is sat within the biblical festival of Shavuot. So Pentecost refers to the 50th day, and the 50th day it's referring to is the festival of Shavuot. Shavuot is the festival of weeks, and Shavuot is that festival that comes seven weeks after the Passover. And so Shavuot is that that festival of weeks. Pentecost and Shavuot are the same thing. Shavuot, the festival of weeks, is the celebration of the harvest. Uh, this is the spring harvest. There's two harvests involved. There's an early harvest and a late harvest in the spring uh, harvest season. The early harvest is a barley harvest. Uh, the late harvest is a wheat harvest. The barley is kind of uh, the poor man's grain, the cheap man's bread. And then the wheat is the fine flour, the finer bread, the higher quality bread. Um, that's how the spring harvest is working. Is working. Uh, it's also the celebration. So Shavuot is your is basically your spring harvest Thanksgiving. It's where you come and you give thanks to God for providing through the spring harvest, both at the beginning and at the end of that harvest. But what you have uh, is also the celebration of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. When the Jews did the math of the story of the Exodus, they came to the conclusion that if the Israelites left Egypt on Passover— Uh, They arrived at Sinai 10 days later, and Moses spent 40 days with God in the cloud on top of Mount Sinai. And then the giving of the law happened 
exactly on Shavuot, according to Jewish thought. So they celebrated the giving of the law. See, if you look at Torah, when it talks about Shavuot, Torah is just going to say Shavuot is about celebrating the harvest. But the Jews also celebrated the giving of Torah and the story of Sinai because Shavuot happened at Sinai. That would have been their very first Shavuot. So they celebrated the giving of the law at the temple. If you go back and review the details of the story of Mount Sinai, you're going to find a bunch of striking similarities between the story of Pentecost and the story of Moses and the giving of the law in Sinai. And we've actually put a link to our podcast, which was episode 22, you said, Brent? Yeah, under okay. the hoopah. Under the hoopah is the name of that. And you can go back and review that story there. You're going to find a lot of similarities between the story of Sinai and the story of Pentecost. In both stories, you have the people coming to the mountain of the Lord. In Exodus, it's Mount Sinai. But in Acts, it's Mount Zion. In both stories, there's thunder or tongues. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, we call that the Septuagint, the word they used for thunder is the word glossa. But the word glossa also means tongues, which means you have glossa in both stories. When you come to Sinai and Exodus, you have the sound of thunder. When you come to Acts and the story of Pentecost, you have the sound of tongues, but both of them are called glossa. So in both stories, you have the mountain of the Lord. In both stories, you have Glossa. In both stories, God is going to establish his temple. Of course, in Exodus, it's the story of them building the what, Brent? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. And what's the temple here in the book of Acts? The the believers themselves. Yeah, the story of God's people. Uh, Peter's going to call them living stones, by the way. We'll look at that later in session four. So in Exodus, fire will come out from the temple and consume the sacrifice as God dwells in the tabernacle. And in Acts, God's fire will come out and settle on the people as God takes up residence in his new temple. So you have all kinds of parallels. You have the mountain, you have the glossa, you have the temple, the grand opening of a temple, you have the fire. In Exodus, Moses will come down the mountain with a message from God and find the people in sin at the golden calf. We are told that Moses will sanction the slaughter of about how many people, Brent? 3,000. 3,000. Peter stands on the steps of Mount Zion with a message from God that the people will find themselves pierced and about how many are going to be saved in the book of Acts. What do you know? It's 3,000. It's 3,000. You better believe that this is in the text. The story of Pentecost is the redemption of the golden calf story, and it's brilliant. Brent, how about we read the text? Uh, give us the first bit. What do we got? Uh, Acts 2, 1 through 14? Something like that. Okay. Uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, it's getting weird, uh, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, 
Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Which I find this just so moving to me. Peter, who, remember, denied Jesus, wasn't even a disciple, was then reinstated, has enough gusto, confidence. We would call this trusting the story in session one. Peter is willing to trust in his reinstatement, trust in his forgiveness, not get hung up on his failure. Feels very Abraham-y to me, if you ask me. And he's willing to step up and deliver this sermon. Now, for the sake of brevity, we're not going to read his sermon. I am going to reference it in our next episode, um, but we're not going to read it, but you should. Uh, You should take time after this episode or pause the episode, whatever you want to do, and read his whole sermon. But Brent, at the very end, let's pick up on his last line of his sermon and uh, go from there. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 that I might add in the text is a repentance. This is not a conversion. This is not a mass conversion. There's no changing of religion here. These are all Jews. There's no Gentiles in the story of Pentecost. Gentiles don't enter the story in a formal sense until Acts chapter 10. So for nine chapters, we have a completely Jewish story. This is Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. They're at the temple celebrating Shavuot. We were told that they're Jews, God-fearing Jews from all those different nations. They've all gathered here and they're at the temple and they want to know what they've done. Peter doesn't have them convert to a new religion. They're already Jews following the God of Israel. They just need to follow the God of Israel correctly. That's called repentance. Shuvah. Shuvah. Exactly. That's exactly the word that Peter would have used. We have it in the Greek in the book of Acts, but he would have used it in the Hebrew there. Aramaic, maybe. He's not speaking in Greek at the temple. I'm going to say he's speaking in Hebrew. And he's saying, Shuvah. He's telling them, come back. This is not a conversion. This is a repentance, which for me, as a Jewish reader, is very, very important to point out. We are not starting a new religion here. We're simply calling a Jewish movement to its original moorings, but more on that in our next episode. Maybe Peter was speaking Hebrew, and then Luke heard it and wrote it down in Greek. Ah. (laughs) Speaking in tongues, baby. All right, but now one last thing before we close up this conversation here, because the second observation I want to make is about the content of the celebration. Not only are the Jews celebrating the giving of the law, but biblically, the festival is put in place to celebrate the wheat harvest. In the biblical world, there are two harvests each spring. The barley harvest comes first. Barley is often referred to as the poor man's grain. The barley loaves being the bread for the commoner. The second harvest of the spring harvest is wheat. This grain is much more desirable and fine than that of the barley. It's much more finer flour. 
In the biblical calendar year, God told you to celebrate the festival of first fruits with the barley harvest. You would bring the first of the barley harvest and remember that God brought you into the promised land. Now, the barley harvest is always, excuse me, first fruits connected to the barley harvest is always the Sunday immediately following Passover. So we know that when Jesus was crucified this year, he was crucified on Passover, Thursday, Friday, Friday, okay? Then after that Friday, that next Sunday would have been first fruits. What happened on that next Sunday, Brent? The resurrection. All right, the resurrection. So Jesus is raised on first fruits. Then 50 days later, God told you to bring an offering in proportion to how the Lord had blessed you for the festival of Shavuot. Not only this, but you were commanded not to cut the corners of your field during this harvest, leaving it for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. We remember that from session one, I hope. What, what I love about this story here is that God tells you to offer your best to those in need, even after you offer a gift to the Lord in proportion to his incredible blessing on you. So at Shavuot, you're not just bringing a thank you gift to God at the temple. You're also leaving even more behind you at the corners of your field. Now, have we heard a story about corners of fields and people gathering in corners of fields? We sure have. Yeah. Ruth. The the book of Ruth. My teacher Ray, I remember him in Jerusalem, jumping up and down and saying, if there are no uncut corners in your celebration of Jesus, you are not Pentecostal. I don't care how many of you are speaking in tongues. In the Jewish mind, it's not Shavuot unless those in need are blessed. So how does the story in Acts end? Brent, give me the, uh, give me the last little bit of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They had true Pentecost. Not only this, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus play into this story as well. Jesus dies on Passover, is resurrected on the festival of first fruits, uh, which I love. He becomes the he becomes the the first fruits for the poor man. He is the poor man's sacrifice. And God saves the greatest harvest, the fine and desirable harvest of the wheat, to be the fragrant generosity of his people, partnering with him to put the world back together. (laughs) That's good little tidbits and tasty little vittles from the text. It's an epilogue of an early church that got it. As the Jews continued to study the story of Shavuot over the centuries, they began reading the story of Ruth each Shavuot. So on Shavuot, you read the book of Ruth to remember all these truths. The book of Ruth is basically written to encompass all of the principles we've discussed. There is the giving of the law and Ruth reminding Boaz of the covenant he carries and the call he has to take care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow, of which Ruth is all three. There are the uncut corners that she gleans from. We're told that she shows up during the barley harvest and gleans through the wheat harvest. We are confronted over and over again with the generosity of Boaz. Will this movement of God followers set apart for the task of partnering with God on Shavuot 
end up providing a home and a welcoming community for the mumser, the outsider, the foreigner, the alien, the orphan, the widow, and sees the call of Avram to be a blessing for all nations? Will we see an example of a community of people who understand how to partner with a God who is putting the world back together? It feels like almost, Brent, we've come full circle back to Abraham again. There are so many like Abraham moments in the story of Acts to me, and I love it. It's one big story. One big story. And this might be a good time for listeners perhaps to jump back to episode 37 called A Love Story that's about the Book of Ruth or just read the Book of Ruth. It's, Absolutely. It's a pretty short read. Put it in the show notes there. Yep. We'll have it in the show notes. Uh, if you have any other questions, comments, please get in touch with us. Just go to BaymontDiscipleship.com. We've got all the details you need about the show. We've got contact information on there. Everything you need is at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. Ugh. That was dumb. Three episodes. We're three episodes deep.